Well, we're moving on this morning into uh, Ephesians chapter 3. And I want to say it right up front that I am completely inadequate to try to put words into words the, the cosmic significance of the church we're going to look at this morning. I'm but a clack, or a cracked a clay jar, cracked pot baby in your eyes. <clears throat> but the truth in this text is so glorious, so amazing, that it can shine on its own if we just take it seriously. And I'm also encouraged that even though this passage might be a little bit confusing, we see that his prayer that follows after verse 13, starting in verse 14, he asks for God's help in comprehending the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of this revelation in Christ. If he had to pray for that, then I'm not worried. Because we tend to consider the church a mere institution or maybe an intrusion into my freedom to uh, recreate or a no-never-mind optional part of life. I hope that after today we can understand that Christ's church is so much more than we realize. Way back when, as a newly minted Christian, my first job after college was in Bremerton. And in seeking Christian fellowship at work, I joined a noontime Bible study. And I was shocked to find out that, uh, based on their Schofield reference Bibles, the church was not a part of God's original plan. I mean, after all, the word church never was in the Old Testament. The church came about as God's plan B because the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus as their Messiah. That's what I was told. Thankfully, my pastor took me aside, showed me Ephesians 3, and helped me understand that their understanding of the church was deficient, to say the least. And their faulty understanding of the church led to a lot of negativity about God's plan for right now that, that leaked over into the fact that they wouldn't even associate with local churches. Now their presupposition of the limited value of the church is in direct contrast to what we've already seen in Ephesians. In chapter 2, remember Paul described how Christ broke down the wall between God and mankind and also broke down the wall of hostility, he says, between Jews and Gentiles by, he says, making them into one people. And he made him into one people through his death on the cross. And he begins, chapter 3, by starting to offer a prayer for the people in the church at Ephesus. But he breaks off in mid-sentence to describe how he got the message that changed his life, and what that message is, and how it became the central part of his life work, and then how it fits into the cosmic mission of the church. And then in verse 14, he goes back to this prayer that he started in verse 1. So we look this morning, we're going to look at this mystery. And this is the section we're going to look at, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery is made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, 
and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Well, as we begin in prayer, there's two prayer requests in particular I wanted to bring up. Uh, one of them is that uh, Melanie Curl is recovering from surgery, and as she's in surgery, she discovers that her mom had passed away uh, in Arkansas. So we appreciate prayer for her, for the healing, as well as this uh, unexpected grief. And also for Nick, who is apparently out of his cast now, but and recovering, pray for his healing from the surgery that he went through this last week as well. Uh, so let's just open in prayer. I thank you, Father, that you have made clear through the Apostle Paul things that are kind of hard to see in the Old Testament, maybe even obscured. And I thank you that you made it clear to him what your plan was about from the very beginning, even before the foundation of the world, when you selected us to be your children. I thank you, Father, that you are at work in the lives of uh, Melanie and of Nick. You're going to provide healing in both cases. I also ask in particular for Melanie that you would give her wisdom on how to make this trip, even though recovering from surgery, to Arkansas or Mississippi for, this, for her mom's funeral, that you'd make that possible. Uh, do work out the details. And that you would encourage her in her grief. I do thank you, Father, that the mystery that we have before us it's, just, it's amazing, the fact that all that Jesus has done is so much more than we think of just our little individual basis. You redeemed us from a life of sin. You redeemed us from a life going nowhere except down. And that's important. But, Father, that's just a small part of what you're about. So help us, Father, to get a bigger picture of where we fit in your plan. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what we have in this passage this morning is one great big long parenthesis, uh, an apostolic rabbit trail, if you will. Because Paul suddenly reflects, I think, on his last meeting with the elders of the church in Ephesus, as he was on his way to Jerusalem, at that point not knowing what his future held. And we see this in Acts chapter 20, uh, verses 30, starting at verse 36, when he meets with the elders of Ephesus at the town of Miletus nearby. And when he had said these things, Paul, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They, they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And since that time, the Ephesians, I'm sure, had only received secondhand information about what had happened after that meeting. So Paul brings him up to date. At this point in his life, he's under, I guess you could say, a pre-COVID house arrest in Rome, because of the Jews in Jerusalem. So he takes time to explain why he suffers as a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles and why that's important. So he begins to, to explain his own role in the plan that God has for the Gentiles to make them his people. So he's strengthening his relationship with them by describing his commitment to them and reassures him that his imprisonment should not cast out on his message or on his ministry, he's still joyfully serving his Savior and Lord. Imprisonment, as it turns out, is part of his God-given ministry 
to announce, he says, the astonishing mystery made known to me by revelation. Now, we think of mystery. We might think of Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie, Father Brown, or my favorite, Inspector Clouseau, or NCIS, maybe. Because we get intrigued, get involved in trying to solve the crime. That's a mystery to us. Mystery can sometimes be a whole lot more personal, even. For example, the mystery of filling out federal income tax forms, or knowing what your wife really wanted for her birthday. <laughs> Apparently, it was not a skill saw. <laughs> but when we come to the New Testament, these understandings of mystery are really are real red herrings. To the apostles, mystery refers to truth that was unclear and fragmented in the Old Testament but now made clear through what God has done in Jesus Christ. In effect, it's, it's an open secret. In Christ Jesus, God has finally revealed what he was up to in the Old Testament. The final stage of world history has dawned now in the death and resurrection of the promised Messiah. The kingdom is here, although it's not yet in its final form. So now how God intends to draw history to a close is getting a bit more clear. A big part of this closure is Jesus triumphing over the forces of evil through the cross and removing barriers between Jew and Gentile and creating a new race of mankind called the church, the very body of Christ. And Paul's been building up to this text throughout his letter. Here's just some selections of where he has already taken us to, get, to build up to this point. In nine, God the Father is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So the overall, overall mystery is that Christ is the cosmic unifier. He's the only one who can reconcile everything in creation, you know, from the heights of heaven you know, to the depths of the earth. God sums up everything under Christ, including rebellious spirits in the heavenly realms and rebellious humans on the earth. Everything is being reordered to submit to God. It doesn't discount the reality of hell for those who refuse to submit, but simply explaining that God's order will be fully restored everywhere under the rule of Christ. And the future of this, this future glorious new creation is now certain. The completion now is just a matter of time and God working out the details. In chapter 2, verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we saw before that God sees us as his masterpiece, as a new creation in the body of Christ. And he's planned out history from before the foundation of the world, and he says, and we're part of it. Christians are never on the wrong side of history, I mean, whatever that means. 2.15, Christ has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So he's referring there to Jewish ceremonial law, their, their rules and regulations, which included things like, you know, at that point, animal sacrifices or dietary regulations or uh, rules about ritual cleanness and uncleanness, Sabbath keeping, and of course, our old friend, circumcision. Jesus obeyed all aspects of the Jewish law as God intended and so he fulfilled all of its legal requirements. Jesus created a single new humanity in place of the two, 
In verse 16 in chapter 2, he says, He reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross. So the cross, once again, is the key. When Christ died, he covered the sins of Jews and Gentile for all who would believe on him. And as Paul told us, it's for by grace you've been saved through faith. So he provided his righteousness, his standing before God for Jew and Gentile, for all who would believe on him. And he did this by making himself their substitute. His punishment was theirs. His righteousness is theirs. Both coming to completion once again on the cross. And Paul continues to let us know that he, as the other apostles, have been given a special insight into the mystery of Christ by God himself. He says, by direct revelation. In chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. If we think about this for a second, Paul expressed elsewhere in Scripture, in the book of Romans in particular, chapter 1, that the gospel was promised beforehand by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the gospel of God's blessing for all nations really had been announced to Abraham and promised by the Old Testament prophets. For example, Isaiah 52, part of those servant songs that you that was read this morning, but later one, in Isaiah 52.10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So the mystery he's talking about here has to be more than just Gentiles becoming God's people, because that was foreseen and prophesied in the Old Testament. But what was completely unknown and inaccessible to human understanding was not God's plan to save all nations, but how God was going to accomplish such an audacious plan. Is he going to make them Jews? How's he going to do this? It was a complete mystery until God revealed it to his apostles by giving them special insight into the plan that he had. God then used the apostles to communicate it to us, and we now have it as the New Testament. Keeping in mind that people who call themselves apostles today are not dealing honestly with the true meaning of an apostle. So what is this mystery, then, that Paul is so excited about here in verses 4 through 6? The Gentiles in the period known to the Old Testament prophets as the latter days, which includes anyone living after Jesus' resurrection, the mystery is that they are no longer required to obey Israel's national customs and outward signs required by the law in order to become true Israelites. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery is not that these two groups now are one loosely knit community, since that was already prophesied in the Old Testament. The new wrinkle is that they are one in Christ, they are one in the Messiah, who as the Israelite Messianic king represents true Israel. If you think back in the Old Testament, Gentiles became members of true Israel through the adherence to the Torah, to the law. Remember, people like Rahab and Ruth, Uriah the Hittite, how did they become Israelites? They ended up making a commitment and following all the rules, requirements, rituals, all the aspects of life, 
All the cultural distinctives, you know, keeping kosher, celebrating special days, keeping Sabbath, everything that was required by Israel's law. So the picture was that if you're going to be a Gentile and you're going to become part of true Israel, you have to follow Jewish customs. And the Old Testament prophesied that when Gentiles would become Israelites in the latter days, they would also accept the same cultural tags that identified a person as an Israelite. The surprise comes in that Paul claims that Gentiles, together with Jewish believers, have now become true Israelites through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the true Israel in bodily form. Gentiles come to Christ without adopting any of the cultural tags that used to be required by Israel's law. Gentiles become true Israelites of the end time, the latter days, without having to adopt any of the Jewish laws or traditions which would have been required before Jesus came. This is, what's shocking is that Gentiles in Christ are now true Israelites, and Jews outside of Christ are not even if they can trace their family genealogy back hundreds of years. The only tag that's now required for one to be considered a true Israelite is identification with Christ. And this is true for ethnic Jewish believers as well. The way ethnic, by family, Jews become true Israelites is then also part of the mystery, and one that is guaranteed to incur the wrath of Jews who heard Paul and others preach. Your Jewish ancestors did not make you a true Israelite. Isaiah 49, that was read this morning, is a passage identified as a servant song, and it refers to the Messiah. In verse 3 it says, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. The Messianic servant was to be the true Israel. Those who place their faith in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are identified as the true end-time Israel. Romans 9, verses 6 and following, states it this way. Paul, once again, says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named, the children of promise. All this points to the fact that the church today is not merely like Israel. It now is Israel. Jesus the Messiah is true Israel. He is the temple. And since there's only one Messiah, there can only be one people of God. Jew and Gentile are one because they're now incorporated and identified with Christ, the Israelite Messiah who now represents them. So to become true Israel, one now moves to Jesus, one does not have to move to the nation of Israel. Now most of us go through our kind of daily grind, seldom sensing, the impact of the magnitude of who we are in Christ Jesus, the God-man, the, the ruler of the universe, the one who submitted all cosmic powers to himself. And I don't think we take enough time, speaking personally, to meditate on how our jobs, our, our home life, our leisure, our church involvement, how all these fits into the, really the cosmic significance of the church, what God's really about. And consequently, I think our lives sometimes lack the, the, the flavor of eternity. Jesus wasn't like that. Every part of his life was a part of a cosmic plan, and he knew it, and it energized him. And the Apostle Paul was like this, too. He saw his own ministry as part of a cosmic plan, and it filled him with seriousness and with passion. 
<laughs> and I pray that God will open our eyes today so we can see that, that each of us believers, each with his or her own peculiar special gift, are part of a cosmic mission given to the church by the Creator. And that mission, their purpose is stated in verse 10 in chapter 3. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So the cosmic mission of the church is to display before the hosts of heaven the manifold, the multifaceted, the multicolored wisdom of God. Remember, Jesus said that you are the light of the world. That's not all. Paul is saying you're the light of the cosmos. You're the light of the universe. With a special mission of revealing God's wisdom to supernatural beings. And therein lies, I think, a great incentive for being the church God created us to be. So to understand this mission that God has given us, we need to look at, I think, three questions. One of them is, who are these principalities and powers he's talking about? What is the divine wisdom that the church is to make known to them? And how do we do it? Well, let's look first of all at who are these principalities and powers? Well, those same two terms are shown later, show up later on in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 11 and 12, where he says, To put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand against the wiles of the devil. For we're not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Well, here you can see that the principalities and powers are clearly aligned with the devil. But if you look at other references in the New Testament, you find some interesting things. This because the same terms have become used to describe God's loyal angels. For example, in 1 Peter 1.12, it was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, these angels are the ones who are still serving God. And then we come to a passage that I find fascinating, and I'm not going to be able to spend a lot of time on, although we could, spend, we could spend a lot of time on it. It's in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 17 through 20. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands in which he's standing, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, the number seven, of course, has a lot of significance, usually the idea of completeness or totality or a way of standing in for all things of like nature. So apparently from this, every church has an angel. Even Grace Fellowship, Little Grace Fellowship, apparently has an angel of some type. And since Jesus, the Ancient of Days, has these angels in his hand, he says, under his direct control, I think these angels really are part of God's team, his heavenly host, or his army. So we have principalities and powers that refer to supernatural beings serving Satan. We also have principalities and powers applying to supernatural beings, serving their creator. Bad angels, good angels. Which one? 
You're both right, right? I think you're referring to both, the entire cosmos. He's saying that what's happened, what God has done, applies not just to flesh and blood, it applies to beings that are supernatural. Regardless of who these beings serve, they are still observing, in some way, how God is working through his church. How he's manifesting, he says, his multifaceted, his manifold wisdom. Of course, it's kind of a pointless task to try to locate heaven, despite what the, the Russian astronauts tried. Uh, because God and all his angelic hosts, both good and evil, are spirits with, with no spatial dimensions. So by locating principalities and powers, he says, in the heavens, he's simply saying that they're not earthly creatures. They inhabit another dimension, the dimension that's similar to God's. So back to verse 10. It is through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers who dwell in the heavenly places. So supernatural powers are at work in support of God's wise deployment of his church and also in opposition to his plan. As we saw back in chapter 2, verse 2, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirits that now at work in the sons of disobedience. Both sets of beings have influence on earth. On the course of this age, it's people, inventions, institutions. And these are the beings to whom the church is to demonstrate, namely us, the manifold wisdom of God. So that's the message. The second question, and we look at Ephesians 3.10, is what is the divine wisdom the church is to, is to make known to the principalities and powers? What is the, what is the divine wisdom? And do that, we're going to go back and just look briefly at the, the, the first ten verses, seeing them as three stages of revelation. First, Paul receives the revelation from God, he says in the first seven verses in chapter 3. Then the church receives the revelation from Paul. So the, the revelation goes from God to Paul, Paul to the church, and then he says in, ver in verse 10, the church makes those principalities and powers uh, of makes them see what God's up to. So, God to Paul, Paul to the church, the church to demonstrate. And he says that the, the mystery was known to, made known to me by revelation. Because many in Israel did not catch on to the hints in the Old Testament that God intended to include all nations in the blessings promised to Israel. So when Christ came to accomplish just that, Many in Israel just simply rejected him. But it's clear that Christ came for that purpose. Paul reiterates this in Romans chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. God intended that there be unity, which is part of the mystery of Christ, the Messiah. Contrary to all the Jewish expectations at the time, he, he expects to save, he comes to save both Jew and Gentile, and he's going to bind them both together in one new people who together inherit the promises on equal footing. This is a church. This is God's uh, third race. So the mystery of Christ is that in his death on the cross, he purchased not just eternal life for individuals who trust him, you and me, he purchased and formed a new people, a church composed of Jews and Gentiles who are both heirs of God's promises and beneficiaries of God's grace on equal footing. 
So that's the first stage of the revelation, revelation that Paul gets it. He gets the revelation. And the second stage is and he, he turns around and he communicates that. He preaches that good news to the nations. The Gentiles may become fellow heirs of Israel's promise by simply trusting Christ. He saw his task like this, to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So when Paul communicates this mystery of Christ to the Gentiles, he puts it in terms of, of riches, riches of grace. So the essence of the mystery which he proclaims to us Gentiles is this. Christ is the one through whom we become part of his unsearchable riches. We become heirs according to all the promises that he's made to God's people. And the re reason that God rescued us from death and made us alive in Christ is that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So one of the astonishing things about this is that he sent his Messiah to die for sins and to rise again in order to create a church of Jews and Gentiles on whom he could spend an eternity lavishing every possible blessing with all his infinite power. That's essentially saying the best is yet to come. And now it's just been made to us, known to us Gentiles, and he's began to create his people, the church. The third stage is in verse 10. Through the church, through us, this new unified people, God's multifaceted wisdom is now going to be made known. So the wisdom, really, of God is the wisdom it took to devise a plan of redemption as great as this, a plan to unite and to glorify Jew and Gentile contrary to all human expectation by the horrible death of the all-powerful Messiah. The wisdom of God is the same as the mystery of Christ revealed to Paul. Which I think leaves us with one final question, and that is, how are we, the church, to make this wisdom known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places? I don't think that the mission really is here to inform satanic or heavenly hosts what God's mission is. I think they already know that. What the wisdom is, is seeing how well the plan works. That's how you determine if a plan was wise, if it works. We show the wisdom of God by, in, by showing in the church that his plan works. The death of Christ was not in vain. It, it has reconciled us to God. It has broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile or any other ethnic group you want to throw in there, any other race you want to throw in there. He has broken down the wall of hostility. He's produced one new body, and he's given us hope of his immeasurable kindness, he says, forever. So we show the wisdom of God by living this way, by being the church that Christ died to create. But here's an amazing thing. The, the rulers and authorities don't just see the wisdom of God at the cross. They see it in what the cross created, namely the church, from every tribe, people, and nation. And as the, as the angels watch us, they see us learn to trust God, they see us learn to turn from our fears and renew ourselves with divine strength. They see us draw upon God's great and mighty promises in the, in the time of great testing or great trial. 
And they see this. And I think that they're amazed by God, who's able to find a way in which he can lavish his love upon the very ones who despise him, who are his enemies, who deserve his wrath. This makes the good angels praise God. You never can completely solve the mystery of God's amazing love manifested in his multicolored wisdom. But it's this that edifies the, the angels and teaches the demons the nature of the greatness of the God that we serve through how we function within the body, through how we function with Christ. So your gift, your God-given ability to dispense grace and to strengthen faith might seem pretty small. But it's still part of God's eternal revelation of his glory. And as a result, it takes on huge proportions. And now we can see maybe a little bit about just what's at stake in not really being the light of the world, but being the light of the cosmos. The church is God's cosmic showcase of his mercy. And if we fail to live as joyful beneficiaries of his mercy and fail to maintain the unity of the spirit, we bring a cosmic reproach upon the wisdom of God. No pressure. But Paul concludes with another aspect of the mystery of Christ. The Old Testament never really directly linked suffering with redemption. The Israelites never grasped the true meaning of the suffering servant passages in Isaiah that we looked at. Their Messiah, remember, is going to conquer, not suffer. Certainly not suffer at the hands of men, and worst of all, not at the hands of the Romans. Not to die the death of a criminal on a cross. Their Savior, their Messiah, is a king. But Paul wants to reassure the Ephesians that God's purposes often include suffering. At the very end of verse 13, he says, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart of my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. So Paul is speaking of the glorious and vicarious purposes of his suffering. He's reminding us again that his mission was to spend himself for the people of God, and he's telling the Ephesian Christians, look, once upon a time I persecuted Christ and his people, and now God has given me the privilege of being persecuted on behalf of Christ and his people. I tried the former, but I'll take the latter. Don't lose heart because my sufferings are for your glory. It's there so you'll understand the message that I've just told you. Well, considering that, how do you view the trials, the things that you go through that are not pleasant? I mean, are you following Paul's example here in, in keeping a tongue full of praise to God and realizing that wherever you are is right where God wants you to be? Do you recognize that God is, in fact, directing every step of your life? And that right now, if you want to know what God's will is, it's where you are right now. When Paul was willing to go to prison for the sake of Christ, he showed the nations that Christ is more powerful, more precious than freedom. When he was willing to suffer for Christ, he showed the nations and the heavenly beings that Christ is more precious than comfort and security and prosperity. In other words, the infinite value of the unsearchable riches of Christ shine brightly not on Paul's, in Paul's prosperity, but in his imprisonment. With his suffering, he draws the nations to the glory of Christ and displays, once again, the wisdom of the cross. So my prayer this morning is for all of us that we might keep before ourselves 
this a hopefully new incentive for walking in obedience to the Spirit. In all lowliness and meekness, with patience, forbearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The new incentive is this. The principalities and powers in the heavenly places are watching this week, as always, to see if we, the church, will live as if God is wise or if, as if he's foolish. I think we should show them by the way we live that God's mysterious, multifaceted plan is wise beyond all human understanding. And obeying him is worth it not just to please him, but also to show to those around us, especially, he says, the supernatural beings, God's wise. God has a plan. And our fitting into that plan brings him great glory. Let's pray. I thank you, Father, that this is a a mystery, that this is something that was hidden. These people in Ephesus, the ones who, especially the Jews, who had access to the Old Testament, they didn't see these things that Paul's talking about. They didn't see the big picture. It seems kind of maybe blasé to us that God did all these things. We kind of understand it. The part we don't really grasp, I don't think, is that we are now inheritors of all the promises made in the Old Testament to Israel because we are now the new Israel. We're the Israel of God. Help us, Father, not to see ourselves as second class, but really as your, your disciples, one with everyone else who names the name of Christ. And that unity, that unity that we celebrate, we actually celebrate Victoria this morning in the Lord's Supper. The fact that we are all one in Christ. We are all part of his body. So help us, Father, as we worship, not just in singing, but also in partaking, you would help us to understand more deeply your wisdom in all that we do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oops. As we partake in the the Lord's Supper this morning, uh, we know that as we obey Jesus in this celebration of his life and death, we're not just encouraging one another, but we're being observed in some way by God's supernatural creation. Which is why we're encouraged to make sure that we confess any known sins to demonstrate God's marvelous power to forgive. We're demonstrating it. We want to make sure that there are no bitter feelings or resentments toward one another, or the brother or sister to demonstrate that God has broken down the walls that exist between us, that divide us. We rejoice even if things are not going very well to demonstrate the wonder of faith, the trusting of God in all things. And we give thanks for everything that we experience to demonstrate just how deeply we trust our Savior and Redeemer. All those things that we're told to do are really reflections of God's immeasurable grace and riches in our interaction with one another, and and just how great Jesus is and how wise God is. And in doing this, we're not just demonstrating for one another, we're demonstrating for some kind of supernatural being. So so as we partake this morning, we're going to, the uh, individuals are going to come up and pass out the the elements to you as the the worship team plays a song. Contemplate what the Lord's Supper means to you, and if there are any changes you need to make, otherwise you can rejoice and sing along with them. When that song is completed, then we'll distribute the elements to the, to the worship team, and then we'll all partake together. So just hang on to it until we get to that point. So.